We're going to be in Exodus 31. If you want to go ahead and find that in your Bible. And just to remind you, the last time when we were wrapping up Exodus 30, we had talked about your time, your talent, your money and your possessions, even leisure time. And how we, we talked about how whatever you have really belongs to Jesus. And reminding you that he bought you with his blood and that whatever you have should be consecrated for his service. And it ties into today's scripture because we're going to be looking at people who were filled with the Spirit for his service. So let me go ahead and read Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezael, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ohiliab, the son of Ahizamach, the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings with all of its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for airing the priest and the garments of his sons, for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for that holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And it goes on. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Let's pray one more time. Father, we love your word and we are thankful for all that we find within it. Pray that you would help us to understand it, to understand the principles that were given to Israel, the principles that apply to us today. We give you thanks 
for such a valuable possession. Amen. Now, as I got to reading this, think about this for a minute. At first glance, this might seem like a, a, a strange way to end this section that we've been going through. I mean, it, it, I know that for some of you it might even seem a little bit tedious because it's construction information. How to build this, how to build that. And to me, almost anticlimactic. You know, I, I guess if, if, if I had been doing this, I would have structured it so that things end with a big bang. You know, the, the last thing I might have told somebody to do was, here's how to build the Ark of the Covenant, and here's the mercy seat. And then after, after doing that, then have some pyrotechnics like we saw on Mount Sinai to, to end it all so that, you know, it goes out with a bang and they're really, oh yes. But that's not how God does it. He's ending. He's wrapping things up here. And we learn about uh, Bezael and Ohialib. And we also learn about what looks to be a repeated section about the Sabbath. But as we found with so much about the tabernacle, about the tools, when we zoom in and have a closer inspection, what seems to be, I guess, random or haphazard is actually the perfect setting. And what we find here by the inspiration of the Spirit is the perfect conclusion to this set of tabernacle instructions. I mean, think about it. Beginning back in chapter 5 through chapter 30, we've had chapters on the what and the why. What are you building? What does it look like? What materials? We've had all of that. And along with it, the why. What does this symbolize to Israel? Why are these things to be sanctified? Why are they set apart? And now we have the conclusion, and we've kind of got a who and a when. The who, who's to build all this, are Bezael and Ohilib, as well as the craftsmen that they will oversee. And the when, not on the Sabbath. So, verse 1, the Lord says to Moses, Moses, see, look here, take a look. I want to get your attention. There's a man that I want. And I'm calling him out by name. Bezael. Later, he's going to give him an assistant, like an assistant foreman, for this construction project. Oheliib. And the two of them are going to oversee the construction of the tabernacle and the furniture, the utensils. And so think about this. All through this, we've had manna that came down from heaven. The quail came down from heaven. All of these instructions, the blueprints, so to speak, they came down from heaven. Now the work to build it came from man's own hands. And this this is an important distinction because many of the pagan temples in the ancient Near East, they were claimed or said to have been built by the gods themselves. And so they're saying here, these blueprints came from God, but it's built by man. Now Paul makes an important 
point in Acts that God does not ultimately dwell in temples made by hands, but the blueprint is from God. Now, I want to look at verse 3, and this is kind of what I'm going to focus on for a little while. It says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Rauk Elohim, the Spirit of God. Now, this is only the third time up to this point in the scripture that we have this phrase, Rauk Elohim. The first is in Genesis 1-2, where it says, The Rauk Elohim, the Spirit of God, was hovering over the waters. The second time is found in Genesis 41-38, where Joseph, who is interpreted in dreams, is described as one with whom the Rauk Elohim, the Spirit of God, is. And so this is only the third time in Scripture that we have this phrase, the Spirit of God. And it's it's the very first time that someone is said to be filled with the Spirit. This is really remarkable. The first person in the Bible said to be filled with the Spirit was not a prophet, was not a priest, was not a king, was not one of the patriarchs. It wasn't Moses or Aaron or Abraham. The very first person to be filled with the Spirit was a construction foreman, a craftsman, an artist. Yes. Have you ever thought of that? I mean, to be able to do things with your hands, to to create, to be artistic, man, woman, child, to design things, to implement things, to construct, to paint, is a gift from God. And we see it here in that the very first person in Scripture to be filled with the Spirit was someone who worked with his hands. And what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I think there's probably we can import a lot of different ideas, but I want to narrow it to just one definition in light of today's passage. And that one definition of to be filled with the Spirit is this. To be filled with the Spirit is to have an ability from God to do or say what God wants done. I think that's pretty basic and pretty simple. To be filled with the Spirit is to have an ability from God to do or say what God wants done. You know, often the scripture passages refer to the speaking of words, but here it's the construction of actual physical artifacts. You know, there's, there are lots of examples we can find. Micah 3.8 says this, As for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So here, Micah is filled with the Spirit to declare something. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit to turn the hearts of the people to God. Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. And then in the very next breath, she exclaimed or proclaimed the glories of God. And in Acts, it says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. 
and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. But do you realize there's a negative example too? In Acts 5.3, Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied to the Holy Spirit, so instead of speaking the truth of God, they spoke a lie. And do you remember what it says about them? It says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So they lied to the Holy Spirit after being filled with Satan. And Jesus makes the same point a little bit later on that to speak out lies is to speak the native tongue of Satan, the father of lies. And so in other words, Acts is telling us that to be filled with the Spirit is to speak out God's truth. To speak the lie is to be filled with Satan. Ephesians 5, 18 and through 20 talks about being filled with the Spirit. And then it says, for what purpose? For addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. So, if you look at all this in a big picture, to be filled with the Spirit isn't a worship style or an, an ecstatic emotional experience, though emotions aren't a gift from God. But to be filled with the Spirit means that, again, you're aided by the Spirit to do what God wants you to do. And as we've seen, that often involves speaking the Word but it can involve other gifts like building things as we see here with uh, uh, in Exodus 31. So here, the filling of the Spirit as we read through it really entails four gifts. Ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. And the word ability here could be translated, it can go either way, it can be ability or wisdom. It's, it's not wisdom in terms of smarts or intelligence as much as it is a wisdom for doing things. The knowledge of construction, so to speak. Uh, intelligence, to be discerning and perceptive. Knowledge, having an understanding to accomplish the task. And craftsmanship, having the skill to do the work. And so only the best materials, we've already gone through this, only the best materials were used for the construction of the tabernacle, the fine linen, the, the, the color for the, for the garments, the finest jewels, only the best materials. And we see here only the best craftsmen. And behold, I have appointed with him Oheliab, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So there's an understanding here that it's not just two people making this from the start, but they're going to oversee a team of people who are given these skills. And I don't want you ladies to feel left out because over in Exodus 35, 
It says this, Every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. So it was both men and women that were contributing to the construction, to the building of the tabernacle and the utensils. They're all using their gifts and their abilities in service of the tabernacle. Now think about what a privilege this really was. Later on, only the Levites could attend to service in the tabernacle. The women would not be able to attend this service. And no tribe except the Levites would be doing this work of the Lord because he had called them. But we see here two men in charge of the project. One from the tribe of Judah, one from the tribe of Dan. They would be making these implements, making the tent. Now they would never touch them or see them again. Some of them would even construct the Ark of the Covenant. And they would never see it again for the rest of their lives. Because they were not of the priestly line. And yet these men and women were given the special task, this blessing, to create these things. And you recall that the, that the priests we've talked about were covered with, uh, a ceremonial anointing oil as a kind of depiction of God's spirit upon them. But here, what a privilege for Bezalel. He isn't anointed with oil, but he has the spirit filling him for the task. Now, there's one thing that I want to kind of mention is that we should not think that these were new abilities infused on the spot. God wasn't calling these people and making them have brand new abilities that they'd never had before. Although, personally, I kind of wish that that would be the case every now and then. Uh, you know, no doubt they were already skilled. And I think it's really how God calls us to use our gifts. Some people who would naturally in life as non-Christians be good leaders. God takes them, refines them, shapes them, shapes them and makes them into leaders for his purpose. Many who are skilled to write or speak. He takes these skills and hones them and repurposes them. You know, I mean, skills for whatever it is. God's going to take that and repurpose it for his work, for his glory. So here, those who were already good at making things and crafting things, he takes those skills, those gifts, and he says, you're going to use this to serve me. And just think about the spirit coming upon David in 1 Samuel when he plays the harp or the lyre for Saul. Do you think that David had never had musical lessons before and just all of a sudden began to play? I, I, I don't think that. I think I could just picture David many, many days and months out on the hillside watching the sheep and practicing 
and played. But now God is using the skills that David already had. And so it's a reminder to us that that these gifts, I mean, by and large, don't just fall from the sky and suddenly now you're good at something. But all the years of honing a craft, all the time, for example, of of uh, an artist practicing painting, of a of a musician practicing scales, all the times that maybe the uh, Bezalel and Oheliab maybe watching their father, maybe apprenticing uh, with him, uh, and learning to use a mallet, learning to use a chisel, learning how to use a saw. And now God is using it for his purposes. And I wonder if sometimes we have a limited, a small view of spiritual gifts. Uh, you know, we, we go to this list of gifts in, in Corinthians. We go to another list of gifts in Romans and, and in Ephesians. But I don't know that God said just add all these up. And you've got a list of the 19 spiritual gifts and that's all that exists in the world. You know, I don't see anywhere in scripture that music is mentioned as a spiritual gift. But I think that it is. And here we see craftsmanship that can be deployed by God as a spiritual gift. So I think there's a broad range of skills and abilities and and. What you need to understand is, you know, if you're the type of person that likes to do stuff, likes to get your hands dirty or whatever, that God wants to use those gifts to build up the body. All of us have abilities, gifts from God, and he's calling us to use those gifts, whatever they are, for the building up of the body gifts that we should not squander so just to emphasize that for a minute you have gifts from God and they're from God and he calls you to use them for building up the body and here we see artistic design as a gift from God you know just because something doesn't show up in a worship service just because Something is not displayed on a wall in a church. Doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It is still a gift from God. Artists, musicians, craftsmen. I mean, even programming, in a sense, is a gift from God. It is a type of craft, so to speak. All of this can be used and deployed for God's service. God has given these gifts to his church, but they're not given for just our sakes. If they're true spiritual gifts, then they are given for the building up of the body. So don't squander them. And what this means is that you need to think, what are the things that I can do well? How might God refine them, shape them, and redeploy them for his purposes? Because no gift is too small 
that God doesn't have a plan for it. You know, some people may be an eye, a nose, an ear. Somebody's got to be a spleen. And somebody's going to be a pinky toe. But you need all of them to be functioning. And I think we, church, as Gateway Christian Fellowship, we can be a church that that celebrates the diversity of gifts that we all have. Just as we see God giving His Spirit here to uh, Bezalel and Ohelib in craftsmanship to construct the, temp- the, the tabernacle. Now we move on to verse 13. A day of rest. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. That's a pretty bold statement. I mean, we've had all these instructions in the covenants since chapter 25. We've had instructions on the tabernacle. And now God says to underline it all, boldface it, italicize it, don't miss it. What's the reason why? For this is a sign between you and me throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I, the Lord, have set you apart. I, the Lord, have made you different. And that means you rest on the Sabbath for the purpose of knowing God. God has already told them to set aside a sacred space, the tabernacle in which he promised to dwell. And now he's saying that building a relationship takes time. His people needed more than just a place to worship. They needed a holy time set apart with their God. And, you know, it's a very practical set of instructions that they're getting here. And I can just imagine they them holding the blueprints in their hands. We're going to build a house for the Lord. We're going to build a tabernacle. Look at this. I've got the blueprints. We're going to, we get to, we get to build. We get to build all this stuff. We, we get to build it all. And, and Beziel and, and Ohilab, they're, they're getting their groups together. They're, they're parceling out the subcontracts to, to build this, to build this. You ladies, here's the thread. Here's the color that you need. You men, here's the wood to start carving. Here's the, here's the metal to start melting down to shape. And God says, that's good. That's good. Just remember, you're not going to work on the Sabbath. You're going to do things my way. You see, The Sabbath is fundamentally a sign that they trusted God, that they depended upon God, that they did not rest in men or rest in their own wisdom, but that they rested in the Lord. And it's impossible to to really overestimate the importance of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. I mean, it is the most frequently cited of the Ten Commandments. You turn back to Exodus 16 when they're moving through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. If you remember, they were told to gather twice as much manna on the day prior to the Sabbath because it wasn't going to happen on the Sabbath. And you you cook twice as much so that you don't work on the Sabbath. You remember, you know, you remember what happened when every other day when they tried to keep extra manna, it rotted, it filled with worms. But this didn't happen on the Sabbath day 
what they kept overnight for the for the Sabbath day kept perfectly. And then, of course, we move on to chapter 20, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And here in chapter 31, it ends with Sabbath instructions. So now we've had detailed instructions on how to build a tabernacle, and it ends with the Sabbath. Now, interestingly, too, as, as we progress through Exodus, if you were to turn over to chapter 35, you would notice that it begins with instructions regarding the Sabbath. There's a little heading in my Bible that says Sabbath regulations. And in this chapter, chapter 35, they actually start building the tabernacle. It's very deliberate. God is saying, the last thing I want to tell you when I give you, when I give you all these instructions is to keep my Sabbath. The very first thing I need to tell you as you start the construction. So the last thing I tell you with the instructions is keep my Sabbath. The first thing I tell you before you start construction is remember my Sabbath. And it's only one of two violations in the Mosaic Law that call for both death and being cut off. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. And these are not identical punishments. You may think, well, you're already dead. You've already killed them because they violated the Sabbath. What does cut off mean? Uh, death is death. But to be cut off is really a, an additional removal. You don't have a proper burial in the covenant community. You're dead and banished, basically. The only other violation of Mosaic law to receive this double penalty, do you know what that is? Sacrifice and children to Moloch. That's the only other thing that has this double penalty. So it tells you something of the significance of the Sabbath, of the Sabbath command in the Old Testament. And and I know this penalty, you might think, wow, that seems harsh. But you've got to realize what the Sabbath was intended to do. By keeping the Sabbath, or by not, rather, by not keeping the Sabbath, an Israelite was showing that he or she was not interested in knowing God. Breaking the Sabbath was an act of defiant rebellion. It was a repudiation of the covenant. It was a way of saying, my relationship with you is not important to me. You're not worth the time it would take me to get to know you. That was what a violation of the, of the Sabbath was saying to God. And when people said that, they were really cutting themselves off from God. And it was only right for them to be cut off from the people. And you see, this is why keeping the Lord's day holy ought to be important to us. We want to know God. We want to grow in our relationship with him and make progress in holiness. And so rather than treating every day the same, 
we honor God's holy day. It's not just holy to Him, it should be holy to us. Now finally, in in verse 18, we see the importance of these commandments as the tablet of testimony, the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Wow, it says here that these Ten Commandments were written down on stone by the finger of God. Under This is written by the finger of God, underlining for us the significance of this law. You know, these, these tablets would eventually be placed in the Ark of the Covenant, along with Aaron's staff that budded alongside manna as really the three holy artifacts in Israel's history. Now I'm looking around. I don't happen to see a picture of the Ten Commandments on the wall anywhere, but usually when we see them depicted, I think we think of two tablets and we usually say, okay, you've got the the commandments one through four that talk about our relationship with God on one tablet and the second tablet with commandments five through ten that deal with our horizontal relationship. And I'll admit, I know that's how I think of it so many times. It's divided up like that. But that's probably not really the case. Uh, that would not, that would not have been common in the Near East or Far East here, uh, at that time. What would be more common would be you have two copies of the law. So it's really going to be two t- two stone tablets, two copies, one for yourself and one for your king or your lord or god in this case. So two copies would be what the two tablets represent, one for God and one for the people. So what kind of conclusions can we draw from this? Well, I think one of the most obvious is We need to rest. And I think I would challenge you that we need to work hard to rest. You know, why was the Sabbath commandment highlighted more than any of the other commandments? Because it's about trust. The point is not, did you break a sweat? But rather, did you break a trust? I think God's much more interested in us trusting Him than how many steps did we take on a Sabbath or did we break a sweat. You know, we, we, we live in this sort of life where we need to say, we need to think, God, this world doesn't depend on me. And ultimately, even though I want to be a good dad or good mom, my family ultimately does not depend on me. It depends on you, Lord. My work, my business does not ultimately depend on me. It depends on you, Lord. You know, people who have never stopped to rest... I think it's more than just a bad habit. It's an issue of trust. Do you trust God enough 
do you trust God enough that He is in control, that He can manage? I mean, think about your alarm clock going off every morning. I know it's a sweet and wonderful sound. But think about your alarm clock going off and God says to you, Good morning. I just want to let you know I managed fine without you while you were asleep. (laughs) The world is still here. It did not end. Things got along without you. It's okay for you to sleep. It's okay for you to rest. So resting is not so much about all those laws about what we can or can't do. It's a matter of trusting in God that He is more than able to take care of us and take care of the things that matter. And here's maybe the second thing is that there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4 talks about it. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So we rest from our works. Rest from simply any works. I mean, some people read that and they go, well, it might be pertaining to bad or evil works. But I see it as really resting from any type of striving for acceptance with God. You know, if we really don't rest in Christ, then we think that we need to prove ourselves to God. We need to earn something with God. We need to merit something with God. And it goes on even more than that. If we can't rest in Christ and end up not trusting God, then we can't allow ourselves to be loved by God. And do you see that we're even a greater danger of not just being physically put to death and cut off, but having the same double punishment spiritually? If we can't allow ourselves to be loved by God, then we're the ones that are spiritually cutting ourselves off from God. And in a sense, cutting ourselves off from his people. And so the lesson here of the Sabbath is to put all of our trust, all of our dependence upon God. And I think as difficult as it may be for some of us to actually physically rest one day in seven, it may even be more difficult, but more important to rest in God on the Sabbath and really every day. Because Lord, you're the one. God's the one who gives me value. We talked about this the last time. God's the one that gives me purpose. I mean, it's not how my kids are doing. It's not how many wrinkles I have or don't have. It's not the number of pounds that show up when I step on the scale. It's not the amount of money that I make. You know, I want to say, God, it's you and I rest in you. I rest from whatever whatever evil works I may do. I rest from all the works that I'm striving to make it in the world. And I trust only in Christ. I want to be that the thought rolling through my mind all the time and in my heart. 
and, and maybe as a final lesson, as God's people, we ought to always be doing things God's way. That's the point here. God's saying, I've given you instructions. I've given you an exact blueprint. Now I've given the spirit to these two men, Bezalel and Oheliab, in craftsmanship, because I want them to do it just as I have said. According, you know, back in verse 11, it says, I've given them this so that according to all I have commanded you, they will do. God has his reasons for his good, for his glory. And I don't know what to think about this, but it here we're at the peak. We're at Israel's peak at the end of chapter 31. The very next section is probably one of the greatest tragedies in Israel's history. Here they're they're at the literal high point with a word coming down from Mount Sinai to Moses saying, you know, God's saying, I'm going to dwell with you. I've made a way for, for me to live with you. I've given you sacrifices. I've given you a home. I've given the spirit to fill these men so they can build the tabernacle. Do it all according to what I've commanded you. Do it the way that I told you. But in the very next chapter, it's just the turning of a page in the Bible. Or looking down to the very next chapter, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. And you know what comes next? They made a golden calf. They did not do as God commanded. I would argue that it happens to us all. Maybe sometimes monthly, weekly, maybe even daily. The temptation of thinking, does God really know best? Is it really going to be best if I do things His way? Can I really trust Him? That was at the heart of the Israelites' problem. You know, it looked good to Moses as soon as he heard all of it. But as soon as there was this delay, as soon as something, as just, as soon as something was a little breath of doubt blowing through the camp, they thought, I don't know if we can trust God to do it His way. So that's our challenge. Even if there is a delay, are we going to trust God to do it His way? in everything in our life? Or are we going to be like the Israelites and put up a golden calf? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for all of it breathed out, profitable to us. Lord, help us to respond to your word, to what we've read and heard this morning. Lord, I pray that that we would trust in you. We would trust that you know best. 
we would trust that it's going to be best to do things your way. We pray that you would deploy us this week with the gifts you have given us to work hard for you, to use these gifts to your glory, to the edification of the church. We pray that you would give us the hard work of resting and trusting in you. A disciplined work of trusting that you are enough and that you're in control. Father, we thank you that you are God and we are not. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.